Welcome, everyone, to our third season of the review panel. I'm Susan Shatter, the president here at the National Academy. And uh, before I begin, I'd just like to uh, invite you all to see the show upstairs, if you haven't already. It's quite exciting for us, and we've gotten great coverage from the press. So we're all very pleased. I'd like to thank the people who have funded the review panel over the years. And they, they are the New York State Council on the Arts, the Daedalus Foundation, and the Edith and Herbert Lehman Foundation. I'm going to introduce David Cohn to you, who is our moderator and also one of the critics on the panel. He is an art critic and contributing editor at the New York Sun. He is editor and publisher of artcritical.com and the gallery director at the New York Studio School. I would also like to thank Graeme White, who records all the review panels, which are then put on to Art Critical, so you can hear them. And Christine Widmar, our director of education. Susan, thank you very much. Susan Shatter is the president of the Academy, and she, as treasurer years ago, was uh, one of the officers who, who really saw this uh, program through its infancy, so very much in her debt. And I'm very grateful to Dr. Annette Blaugrand, the executive director of the Academy, and all her staff for the, for the great job they do. Uh, tonight's panelists are Roberta Smith, art critic for the New York Times, where she's been on staff since 1986. Carol Kino, Kino, Kino. <laughs> we discussed this. Had emails about this, Kino, like, not like the, Jap not like the uh, German for cinema, but Kino, short I. Uh, Carol Kino is, <laughs> is an art critic and contributing editor at Art and Auction magazine and she is a freelance contributor to the New York Times, and for many years she has been uh, a significant voice on Time Out New York. And David Gross, our final panelist, is art critic of the New York Sun, where of course we are colleagues, and he is also an, uh, an associate editor uh, of publications at the Guggenheim Museum, responsible for dotting the I's and crossing the T's and all the labels and invitation cards and catalogs that you received from that institution. So ladies and gentlemen, please welcome your panel. <laughs> it's always wonderful to see a full house here at the review panel. Uh, tonight's event is billed as a, uh, a fringe event of the College Art Association's convention here in New York City. Very warmly welcome the CAA. And just out of curiosity, how many people here uh, are attending CAA and have never been to the review panel before? Wow, that's great. Well, lovely to see you and welcome. Uh, for your benefit and everyone else's, let's just remind ourselves uh, the events, as, uh, as I think um, uh, Susan mentioned, can be heard afterwards and past events, past installments of the review panel, can be savoured thought for thought and blow for blow at artcritical.com slash review panel. Um, just to refresh our memories on the format this evening, what we have is a little PowerPoint presentation of some visuals to remind ourselves of the shows that uh, 
we've seen, and then we discuss the shows, and then between every couple of discussions, um, we take a break and allow the audience to let off some steam, share their views, and probe us with their questions. So the first show we're looking at this evening is Philip Taft's exhibition, which opened last night at Gagosian Gallery. And experience has told me that even, even, uh, even the tone of voice with which one reads off the, um, the medium of a work of art can be inflected with criticism. And as it's not my task yet to be critical, I'm going to shut up and just show you these slides. Philip Taff, an artist we've all been conscious of, I think, since the 1980s, um, now showing at the Gagosian Gallery, uh, an impressive show in terms of scale, both of the works and of the, uh, of the installation. Um, the obvious questions, are we seeing some, something majorly new in Philip Taff, and do we welcome seeing what we see? Roberta, you've been following his work for a while, I should think. How do you, how do you respond to the current show? Quite well. Um, for me, Taff is, Taff is a really interesting artist, and I always find him interesting. I wrote about his first show at the Pat Hearn Gallery in the East Village in 1984, and I liked his work then, and I continue to like it. I, I, I don't think he has developed... Well... I think he develops differently than some artists. I think there's a kind of horizontality to it. But I, I, I don't know. I just really like the way he makes my mind work in front of paintings. I think he has his own touch. He's invented a certain way of painting, which is with this use of, of lino cuts and, and some painted motifs. In the last couple of the last paintings, uh, he's been, been pouring paint and in this very refined way. So you have all this pooling. And then he... Then he builds the images in layers. And what I like about him is, and which I think is consistent in all his work, is the way he makes you go move back and forth between the sources of the things we look at and the kind of way we prioritize them. This show, there was this continual play between nature and culture and chance and, and design and decor decoration versus meaningful motifs. He, a lot of his motifs don't necessarily have any meaning, but he builds them up in a way so that they, they start meaning something. And um, this is the, you know, he's also sort of got moved between Western and non-Western cultures. This time he's working with motifs from, well, there are some Buddhas and some of those big cape paintings, and but a lot of Northwest Indian um, motifs. And I was very interested in how he was sort of dealing with the humid obsession with the face and moving things around, like taking uh, what looked like a Buddha and then putting a northwest motif right in the middle of it so that it seemed to have a third eye, but a, a kind of alien third eye, not, not from the same culture. And they're just, you know, I just find them really engaging. I think, I think that he sort of is bringing to fruition certain ideas that were around in the late 70s with pattern and decoration. Mm -hmm. I think that his ideas about combining abstraction and representation, which were introduced by artists like, say, Sally and Schnabel in the early 80s, that he's also brought those ideas to fruition and continued to work with them. And his whole idea is that anything that 
he doesn't really invent anything. It's very Warholian in a way. Mm -hmm. But so his idea is that anything that exists is there to be used. And yeah. he's constantly reusing things in ways that makes me see them anew and makes me feel that they are, that he's made them his own. <laughs> I'm glad you're picking up on the, uh, the, the, the multicultural and the human, represent, human form and also, I think, although you didn't spell it out, on the potentially spiritual aspect of this uh, accum- accumulation of sources because that's what really struck me about the show and uh, Carol, in a way, really helped differentiate uh, the experience of this show or gave the hint of a differentiation between this show and this very 1980s aesthetic of uh, cultural overload, density, and a kind of postmodern uh, destabilizing of any potential meaning. It seemed to me that there was meaning struggling to come out of some of these arrangements, some of these forms, some of these sources while retaining that kind of uh, very uh, decorative um, aloofness that uh, one characterizes, that, that one associates with, with the earlier taffy. Uh, would you go along with that? How did, you, what, what, how did you respond to the motifs in the work? And did you feel the works carried meaning? Who? Uh, Carol. Oh, all right. <laughs> um, I have... I don't have that much to say about Philip Tepp, to be quite honest, because I know Bridget Riley and quite well, and I know her work extremely well, and it's sort of, and I wasn't around in the 80s or focusing on art or thinking about art then, so I don't have deep Well, are you, are you focusing on Bridget Riley because, yes. because he's appropriated her wave motif? Yes, because one could say I'm an expert on Buddhist art and therefore I'm not well, going to engage with Right? But surely what he's doing is he's, uh, he's giving us a, 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 a lasagna of um, a source influences. And mm-hmm. you, you say, well, I'm not going to talk about lasagna because I'm an expert on mincemeat. I mean, it, the mincemeat's there, but so is the bechamel well, actually, sauce. I, of... I wasn't going to talk about no, it, no. but I said that's the, way, you don't feel... that's the perspective that ah, it's hard for me okay. not to look at it from. So, so... so you're bothered by the appropriation? Not... It, no, it's just that I see it in reference to her work. And what interested me so much about the ones there are two where he uses, you know, really familiar motifs from her work. Yes. It was so interesting that they were so different to what her work does. There was all of this sculptural depth in them, which mm-hmm. I loved and didn't, didn't expect it to be that way, the ones with the gold waves. Um, I thought it was a beautiful show. Yes. Yes. David, did you, were you... Uh, bothered by the plethora of sources, or did they meld into something unified and satisfactory for you? You know, my, my reaction, well, <laughs> my, my reaction to the show really depended on, um, I, I was really interested in the scale of the works, and, and even the, the space that they appeared in. I had, I had a very different reaction to the works I saw on the sixth floor, which are larger, I think, on average, uh, eight eight by nine feet, if not if not even larger, and um, it's it's a large space where four walls. Uh, th- there are paintings on all four walls, and there I really I don't know how to say I I I felt some of the the spiritual quality that you were talking about. I I, f- I found it to be a very meditative space, and the 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 depth of the work. The depth of, of each individual work 
I felt and, and I also sort of got a feel for the, the individual motifs, the, the spearheads felt really menacing. The leaves, um, I, I don't know, the leaves came alive even though supposedly they were extinct. Um, and downstairs and, and on the staircase, downstairs there were three works in a, in a narrow room and they were all smaller than the, uh, the ones upstairs. And then there was one uh, tall, and, tall and narrow on a staircase. And uh, th those ones just felt flat to me. And, I, and I'm, I'm just, it, it was a strange reaction. I, I don't, you know, I, I don't know if it had to do with the size of the room, the, the space they were shown in, but I, I just had a very different reaction. Mm -hmm. Mm. Depending That's on that, I I loved those actually, the especially downstairs. the one on the staircase. I thought yeah. the waves that moved through it, you know, made by so many different means, were was fascinating. But I also think that there's always a way that his work looks flat when you first look at it. That 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 kind of thin skin is is one of his inventions. One, one that makes his painting so strange. And that you're you when you first walk in, you often think, well, this is wallpaper. You know, yeah. and then the whole thing sort of starts to move and oscillate, and uh, they just. They but just, I know that you know, like if you'd walk, maybe it would be interesting if you'd walked out of the room and then come back in or something, because yeah. I did that, and and you know, it all got better. I also thought that 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 the last painting, he was again sort of showing you, well, I can get really ugly, you know, and which lost one? The, the last one that had the kind the of one? yeah, the kind of yeah. plinths with the. Right. You know, and, and I just thought that was a very interesting way for him to end the show because it was the so... The dryads piece? Uh, yeah, yes. yeah, hmm. which I thought was kind of tough and, and uh, implacable in a way he usually isn't. Yeah, I, I, I want to explore more this idea of um, meaning because as you, obviously he is an artist who, who plays with uh, the, uh, the whole pejorative uh, notion of decoration... Um, but he's also an artist who comes out of, as Roberta's already identified, a very Warholian aesthetic, which makes some kind of value statement about uh, either but, whether it's decoration or whether it's kind of uh, a sort of sort of nihilism through repetition. That it's um, that 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 it's um, it's a kind of there's a kind of chic nihilism in Taffy. I don't think that can be really avoided. There's a very 80s attitude in a lot of the serial repetition and the appropriation. I think it could be totally avoided. Sorry? I think it can be totally avoided. That's what you see in it. Uh, anybody... Well, let me identify the three things that's, that, that set off signifiers of uh, uh, potentially of nihilism. And I'm, I'm trying to argue that this show is making a plea for meaning and value. So I'm, I'm wanting to contradict myself, but what I, what I don't think one can avoid saying that when you have um, appropriation of other so uh, sources from other artists and traditions, an accumulation of disparate sources and serial repetition, I don't see how you can have those things without there being the potential for dissipation or nihilism. I totally disagree. That's t that's only your reading. No, uh, really. So, yeah. so you think there's a valid yeah, working there's, with those ideas? Is there a cultural valid reason a, re a reading of appropriation and appropriation is just a more extreme a more extreme version of what goes on in art all the time, which is that artists are constantly borrowing from one another, constantly using, and that's the way art sort of develops and has developed for thousands of years. So I don't think that you need to sort of section these guys off as more, more nihilistic because they use things sort of 
you know, in a whole, take, take things in, in, in larger, more recognizable pieces. I mean, you know, Monet copied people, everybody has copied. And the, the test is in the pudding. If they can make the appropriate, if they can, if their art can justify the use of something and make you see it anew, then you're not having nihilism. And I don't know, I don't think repetition, I mean, you know, there's, I think that, I think that Taft is in, in, interested in making a really big point about what you said, about our denigration of decoration. And, and each of those paint, a lot of those paintings are kind of like little lectures saying, you see this, this is where this comes from. You see this anemone shape? See these thorns? You know, it's like saying, here's nature, here's the decorative. And you just go back and forth and you see, you see all this relationship between things. And I think that that's, that's spiritual. But I don't, I don't think you can sort of designate certain kinds of motifs or certain kinds of formal strategies that way as nihilistic. Well, I mean, do you think Judd is nihilistic? He's a really cheerful artist. <laughs> what, what, what specifically was he? Well, he has, he, has rep, he has a lot of repetition in his work. I'm just, you know, well, Stella. I mean, it's just like... There is, a, there is, a, 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 there is a, I think, in, in classic minimalism, although we can see a kind of... Although there is a, the, the positive spiritual value of um, uh, the, the restful sense of, of something in series, there's also the willful banality and the, the, the people being forced... I think I think those artists were very intentional in in, in forcing us to uh, recognize that the image could go on forever. It's not not in the way of Brancusi's column, which has this kind of spiritual energy, but in in a way of insisting that what you see is what you see in Stella's phrase, or that this is an object, not a sculpture, in Donald Judd's sense. That that yeah, I think there is something very potently. Um, uh, negating about uh, repetition in, in both the artists you mentioned. And uh, but, uh, I think there's so much variation in his repetition. I, I just don't. I, I don't see repetition as all that significant. I mean, there even the. I mean, the the ugly work that the the dryadic figures or whatever it's called. The last one we saw. Um, each one of those three forms had had a different configuration of of patterns on it and. Mm. You know, the, the leaves are all different. The spearheads are different. I mean, any, anything, that, the way the various layers play off each other at every point on the canvas is, uh, is different. I, I think there's, there's a lot of elements are, are reused, but they're reused in different ways. Uh, and there's so much variation within the elements, too, yeah. when they all escalate. I mean, I think you could see it as a tremendous optimism. He's saying, here yeah, are all these completely. dead things, these, these yeah. extinct completely. leaves, these things from ancient cultures, and look, look what, they, look what I can do with them. Look what can be done with them. Look how alive they are. And it's a very optimistic statement about, about how the past is, can, is there to help us and is there to be used by us and, and re, revitalized by us. I, I, I'm also energized by the way that um, he reminds us how many of the most basic ornaments that we are familiar with um, have organic roots, even right. when they're exactly. geometric and abstract. Uh, the, the paisley motif, say, or the uh, uh, any number of motifs that you could think of, the, the, the Doric column, whatever, that it has um, the, the things that, that, that seem to be uh, static have a fluid um, mm-hmm. ancestry, uh, evolution. Um, but I, I wonder... Um, 
I'm not, I'm, I'm kind of, a, I guess, in a way, stirring things up just because I sense that we all love this work and there's very little not to love about it. But I, I do feel that there's, um, that, that I'm being teased with, that the work is on the brink of, of, a, of a bigger meaning while um, still um, hanging on to a kind of um, decorative affront that, um, that, that comes out of a very postmodern kind of attitude. Um, I, I, I wonder the, about the fact that, that you have quite complex, within certain images, quite um, complex gestalts that are then repeated. So you'd have uh, those, those swirling forms with things underneath them mm -hmm. that are kind of coming together almost like a, um, some kind of um, uh, tantric um, art. But then the, the way you get four of them is almost like getting four Marilyns or, or however many you get. But do you get four of them absolutely exactly repeated? Well, you have the I same think there's degree. infinite variation within them. I don't, I wouldn't, I think, I wouldn't want to use the term infinite variation because the variation is more of a quality of the, um, the difference between the, uh, the squeegees of a Warhol uh, electric chair or, or Marilyn. I think that's the more uh, valid cultural reference. I don't think they've specifically variations on a form, I think that there's small incidental variations that he allows the hand and he allows the handmaidness to come through in the way that they're not identical, but they're more similar than they are different. But, but Carol, you're telling us to, you savour more the dis dis distinction between each, each shape or each arrangement rather than the uh, repetition? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I think they're definitely. sort of like a Pollock in a way. That they're, that that's a an important, you know, that he's he's, you know, Pollock sort of did this sort of exploded painting. He painted in a way that was that seems very much about chance. And Taff is coming back and saying, here's a way to do an all over painting where you get to think about every point. You you can control everything. Uh, not not to say you control the whole thing, but you but each part is put down as a separate thought. And the and the whole thing layers up in a certain way that you then take it take your take it apart How in about your mind. More Gottlieb than Pollock. <laughs> the no, because it's a it's this kind of lacy suspended field. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. he's a he's a fantastic colorist, mm -hmm. I think, and the way and the lightness of the color and the way you look through it. Do you really find the work nihilistic? No, I'm saying actually that, that, that it has all the signifiers of nihilism, but I but feel that he's about. What does that matter, really? Yeah. <laughs> what does it matter? Yeah. Well, I mean, if if somebody were using um, the crucifixion mm -hmm. in work, which was um, abstract and decorative, um, you could say, well, that's his private affair, and just look past it and enjoy the abstraction and the decoration. Or you could, or you could, if you want. Um, Retain the the value and the the problematics of of what he's appropriating and how he's appropriating. But a crucifix is a very obvious reference. Yeah, I mean, repetition is not yeah. Christian or non-Christian. No, I only mention the crucifix to say that you know we're, we're choosing to ignore the the thing itself. And uh, no, we're not. <laughs> You're <laughs> David. I mean, yeah. to be blunt, I really yeah. feel like we're just coming up. Against the limits of your taste, in a way. 
for you to for you to stick on this point that but these, I wasn't sticking these, on the point. Carol these are this. Oh, I'm I mean, I mean that in a nice way. <laughs> yes. Give me a okay. <laughs> but but I, I happen to like the work, and I happen to say that I, I know. But you're overinvesting what you see is you know what you see as these signifiers. I don't think that uh-huh. there's. It doesn't I mean, just he's mean not that. Thinking. I don't think he's thinking. I will put these signifiers into the paintings and create, a, you know, an atmosphere of nihilism. Yeah, I'll tease people with nihilism, yeah. but then I just don't think that's going on. Um, I well, <laughs> three against one. But for me, uh, for me, when, when you have um, serial repetition, somebody is getting across whatever value is inherent in serial repetition. And is that always nihilism? It uh, has it a kind of nonchalance. And it has what do you do with bedspreads and wallpaper? That's what I want to know. I mean, you must, you know, there's a lot of repetition in a lot of different... Well, bedspreads and wallpaper aren't asking to be Quilts. read as intentionalist works of art. So that's precisely But they exist on it. the fringes of our existence, mm-hmm. well, prompting we d- us to different emotional states. Yes, but unless, unless an appropriation artist has put them in a gallery... A white cube for us to look at. What I object to is the fact that this that you're seeing this as a kind of fixed value. That this that repetition means a kind of nihilism. That's I don't. I mean, I know you like Taft, but but the Mm -hmm. way you kind of keep coming back to that point as if that's a given and there's Mm -hmm. no other possibility. I find that unusual. (laughs) (laughs) I I I concede that that, um, repetition. Per se, could have different values, as in, for instance, a Brancusi, where the repetition is not about um, any, any kind of negation. But I do feel that when I'm looking at a taffy, I'm looking at something that has come out of the culture of Warhol and the 1980s postmodern uh, sensibility, and that while the while I'm optimistic about the fact that the artist due to his own sensibility, transcends the potentially uh, nihilistic aspect of his appropriation and repetition, I still <laughs> notice those values. But I, I do feel that there's a danger of our discussion being bogged down by what Roberta rightly and fairly, no doubt, calls the limitations of my taste. So, <laughs> with that in mind, I think we can decap and look at some more shows. <laughs> And I think I'm going to actually show the slides for the next couple of exhibitions as well, So, uh, because I think perhaps our conversation may incorporate... There may, we may find some points of commonality between all three. This is Josiah uh, McElhaney's installation at the Museum of Modern Art. And Corbin Walker, the Irish artist showing Pace Wildenstein's uh, uh, West 25th Street branch. <laughs> It's curious, and I don't think was intentional, uh, in the back and forth of choosing shows that look good to us to, from what we could tell. Um, you know, uh, It really wasn't uh, an intention on my part, or I think any of the panellists, to end up with um, uh, three shows where translucency is uh, such a, a significant formal uh, or a mediumistic uh, aspect, as in uh, McElhaney, Hoke, and Walker, um, but nonetheless, that just seems to be the luck of the draw. Um, um, maybe if Philip Taff would be, was here, he would point a finger at me and say, well, Mr. Cohen, uh, is it a fixed value or is it a, a fluke of nature? So, uh, Lisa Hoke, um, 
David, what were your feelings on, on seeing Lisa Hoke? Um, We've got chaos, the rhapsody of chaos. Yeah, I mean, I was actually going to start there. I, I, was, I was confused by the title. Um, what, what struck me about the work was, was actually its order, not its chaos, um, how there seemed to be certain, certain fixed rules for the, for the installation. The aluminum touching the floor or the walls, leading to chains, leading to the colored, colored gel squares, which were attached in a certain way. And even, even though there, were, there was some, there, there were occasional sort of exceptions to what seemed the rules. There, there, was, even, there, there was even a pattern of, of the way colors led into one another. Um, so I, I, I mean, that, that was actually the, my first thought is I, I was trying to make sense of, of the title and, and, and couldn't quite do it. Um, I don't know. I mean, I'll, I'll throw that out as a question to no, the rest of the one. panel. If, if, if people well, have, have, have a way to understand this. Um, whether or not we choose to focus on the title and use that as, a, uh, as an aid or an obstacle, uh, Carol, um, did, you, did you come away primarily with a feeling of uh, order or chaos? I just didn't think it was a very good or interesting show. I'm afraid. So um, it seemed, I don't think I thought of it in those terms at all. Um, it seemed this sort of girly decorative stuff that's going on right now layered over this formalist sculpture. I didn't think it was very aesthetically exciting or interesting. Um, and in some ways I liked the maquettes or those maquette like things in the back the best because it seemed to me there was the, the one that looked like paint chips seemed to me to be more about what her work is about. Um, yeah, I, 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 um, I, I was very impressed by the last installation by this artist that I saw, I think, on mm -hmm. its last day um, at Elizabeth Harris. And I think I was one, perhaps the person who was most keen that we should um, address her work. I, not totally sure that the this piece had the same uh, level of kind of inventive energy, uh, but uh, it seemed to be a, a very solid, re respectable kind of sculptural experience, uh, coming out very much of a, the tradition of uh, uh, Judy Pfaff and 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 others, but um, reverting back to um, a more kind of uh, streamlined, orderly. Aesthetics that that reminded me of uh, constructivism, um, but constructivism given a little bit of speed or something. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but did it really remind you of constructivism, or was that just a reference? Sort of. I mean, I I, th I felt with this work more of, you know, what you were saying about Taff, the artist, you know, as though the artist is working with these ideas and putting them in the piece. Um, I felt that was more what was going on here rather than it emanating from any greater need to be there. Well, I, I, I felt that the artist needed to play with color and that the artist wanted to um, explode certain forms and uh, wanted me to have certain kind of formal experiences of, of light, shape, and color. Uh, that's, that's the extent. I doesn't have the um, 
the kind of uh, urgent uh, intellectual energy that vintage constructivism had, for sure. But um, it put me in a good place. It didn't, I don't, it's not where I hope the future of uh, art history lies, but it, it, it made me feel happy for the time that I was in the gallery. Um, would, would that be the level of experience you had, Roberta? No. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't really think that that work justified its existence. And it's, it's, it's pretty. It sort of doesn't quite make sense. You feel like all the little metal stuff down at the bottom was there just because there had, she thought that there had to be something else between the piece and the floor. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's generic. It's a kind of installation art that's been made for about 30 years. And, uh, you know, the most interesting part of it was the way she figured out how to put it together <laughs> and to make, which is no small thing, and to, and to have this what I call kind of self-evident structure, where everything that you were looking at was part of the integrity of the piece. You know, the, little, the way those little things flew off the corners, they were what tied the corners together, mm-hmm. and the chains were part of it. But it just needed more, you know, it didn't have nearly the kind of density of, of other things that she's done. Mm-hmm. And um, I just, you know... It was weak compared to other It was in and out for me. Okay, yeah. Are we all in and out then? Some, yeah. some of us not feeling quite as unhappy as others, but we're not lingering too long. But Josiah McKellen, uh, no, um, sorry, uh, Corbin Walker. Um, um, Corbin Walker, did he do it for you, uh, Carol? Yeah, I loved that show. Ah. Yeah, I thought it was wow. gorgeous. Mm. Um, it was different at every time of day or, you know, um, actually I was there at night too, so it was different at every time of day or night. Um, it was everything you needed to know about the work, I think, was in the materials, what he did with the materials, the construction of the materials. It, there were planes, there were volumes, they shifted all the time depending on which way you were, you know, which angle you looked at the work from. Um, it's, they had this muscular, squat, sort of muscular quality, but they were also very ethereal because of the way the light played through them. Um, and also, I mean, the other thing that's so interesting about it, I think, is that they're all a bit taller than he is. So I don't think you need to be his height to appreciate the work. Shorter. But, yeah. Shorter, you said taller. I think they were a little taller. No, he's a midget, so, or yeah. dwarf. Um, well, so in the press release, it said he's 48 inches tall, yeah, and the pieces are the, 44. Are they? Yeah. Because one of them, I think, is the, just the a little taller is than him. So is it? Okay. Yeah. I thought that the highest point... Oh, the, the, the runway, the highest point of the runway is taller is than, taller than right? he is. Yeah. yeah, and those little pieces right. in the back, I'm the right. glass pieces. Are Pace Gallery over no. there is saying I'm right. You're right, but also David is right. Oh, okay. The runway is the highest point, so... Okay. okay. What about the squat right. glass pieces in the back, in the room at the left? He's a little taller. Okay, okay. But... <laughs> Which so. we may or may not, you know. I don't think you need to know that to appreciate the work. I think it adds an interesting element to it. It does. Yeah. I, 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 the, the, the gallery is um, naturally very protective of the work, uh, and I was obliged to carry my dog around it. So it, it curtailed the time I spent with it, but it, it, did, it did at least give her a perspective on height, which she, she doesn't usually have <laughs> with sculpture. Um, well, I also love the sense of danger in the work, the fact that it isn't 
glued together. You know, it could, yes. I doubt that it really would slip apart if you pushed it the wrong way, but, um, you know, th there's this tension about it that comes from the fact that mm -hmm. it isn't put together in a Funny enough, there was fashion. a piece uh, by the British artist Alison Wilding at Betty Cunningham Gallery about um, 18 months, two years ago, which uh, was constructed in a similarly precarious way from um, uh, segments of glass. Um, I have to be honest and say that uh, the kind of experience my co-panelists were having with Lisa Hoke, I, I was having with uh, uh, Corbin Walker. They, they seem to be um, very earnest, worthy, decent, solid kind of sculptures that come right out of the tradition going right back to the 70s with uh, Chris, Chris Walmarth and others. And um, it, it, I was um, uh, struggling, uh, not due to the weight of the dog, but due to the lightness of the work, I feel, felt to, to find what it was that really uh, singled this out as something very new and contemporary. David, enlighten me. Tell me what I was missing. Well, I, um, I went twice. The first time, I had the same reaction. The second time, I felt quite differently. Um, Agreed with Carol. I, I think, you know, I, I, I was looking at the the runway the second time, and I was just counting the glass planes. And there was a security guard there who uh, saw someone counting and saw a like-minded, I guess, mathematically oriented person. And he he started rattling off the exact number of glass of glass pieces in that work. He told me how many there were in each one. He told me how many bricks there were in the two walls. And um, there was something, there, there was a detail that, that I caught in his description of the numbers um, where that, that, that caused the whole, the whole show to kind of come together, the, that, that allowed me to see the works playing off each other. Um, and this is that in, in the two walls, um, the, the first one starts if there's sort of they're just like interlocking bricks and the first one starts it has just like an a b a b pattern and it ends on the b the second one ends on the a and with the with the two glass uh, the glass stacks it's the same thing i mean i I noticed that the first ones they they're just they're, there's one extra layer on the the second one and so they begin with a north-south. They're facing north-south, then it's east-west, north-south, east-west, and it ends. The first one ends on an even number. The second one ends on an odd number. And I don't know. There's just something like there was something very delightful for me in this, the the attention to detail that um, but with that respect, this showed me. With such a streamlined, minimal work as this, he's got to make a decision um, as to how he's going to end each each segment, and the decision's going to be of a, of a rigorous mathematical nature just because of the nature of his endeavor, surely. Uh, unless, unless, unless you felt that the piece was energized by the decision he took, I can't see the decision itself as being of significance. I, I think it allows you to see it not simply, you can look at it as a whole, you can look at its component pieces. Um, it, it allows you to, it allows you to look a little longer. And um, uh, Roberta, were well, you looking longer? No. Um, basically, there's a lot of art that's made today that is just stuff. It's just the material. And 
this was had the same problem as the Lisa Hoke, only this doesn't have color. This had, nearly as I could tell, a much bigger budget. I mean, I felt that I was looking at a lot of really, you know, high production values. I felt, and I felt like, um, there's probably an artist that most people have forgotten named Jackie Ferrara, who dealt with those same structures in wood in the 70s. Um, I, I, you know, I, was, I thought the way the glass kind of, there were definitely beautiful elements. The way the, the density of the glass changed the color of the glass so that you went from clear to this really deep green, or the way when you look straight down in those stacks, they sort of became these empty volumes that the sides of the glass gave them edges. Uh, but I, my feeling was that, that he, act, he actually might be an architect, that, there, that the work was more about design and about building for me. You know, but I just, again, I just, I just think he was working with received ideas. I, I, I'm afraid I have to agree with you. I think the formal qualities that you were savoring in the way that the density of glass changes the, uh, the color is something that you can savor in uh, any showroom with current Italian furniture, uh, much of which... Well, it probably takes a little more thought, you know, and if you looked at the two vertical pieces, the way they were put together and things like that, there was, you know, they were obviously... It's obviously very well, handsomely crafted work, but within, within, as as I think you and I agree, a rather long tradition that um, at this stage historically lacks lacks much urgency. Uh, Carol, are you not bothered by the... uh, the, 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 the kind of historical legacy that this comes out of? Did it really seem to you, besides its, besides the personal experience you had with the work, um, intellectually, did it seem to you um, vital? Yes. We don't go for yes-no answers on the review panel, I'm afraid. It's a, a question is a, an invitation to elaborate and to enlighten, because as you know, Roberto and I... Uh, feel no. So mm-hmm. for Roberta and I to be uh, shamed into a deeper aesthetic uh, experience, you need to say something more than yes. Well, I don't know that I have the need to, you know, persuade you over to my side. Um, you need to persuade them to your side. <laughs> <laughs> well. David's never told you what happens at the end of these events, right? <laughs> the audience gets to dismember one member of the panel. <laughs> It's a way of refining the number of critics in New York and getting down to a more respectable number. Well, well, let's think about Josiah McElhaney and whether that work had, um, using also the uh, obviously high production values, um, um, serious craft going on there, um, and um, uh, does it do something more for us or less than... than uh, Hoke and um, McElhaney. Um, uh, Hoke and Walker. Hope, Hope, and, Hope and Walker, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Hoke and Walker. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. Well, uh, who, who, who would like to make a case for, for McElhaney? Uh, David, would you like to make a case for McElhaney? Um, <laughs> you can say no. I'd rather, if someone else has, has a strong case to make, I'll defer to them. Roberta. Um, well, McElhaney is someone who I think is really interesting, and I was extremely disappointed in this show. Uh, I thought, think that you know, he's ha- he has this strange kind of combination of, of a very cerebral, conceptual 
approach. He's very interested in the history of craft and in the stories behind objects. And also this great obsession with craft, with making things that are beautiful, with how they are made. In the previous pieces, he's replicated, talk about appropriation, he's replicated different glass vessels from the history of glass making. I can't really recreate them, but they were these really beautiful objects. And then he would say, this belonged to the Queen of Sweden or in 1863. So you'd have this kind of, or 16-something. So you'd have this kind of like, what am I looking at? Is this real? And um, and then, of course, he's made these amazing optical pieces that, like the one the modern has, where he makes, I can't remember, they're mirrored objects in mirrored boxes, and they're just dazzling. Yes. Here, he just seemed to have lost his connection to all sorts of things. He was dealing with some this whole narrative about these two uh, visionary 19th century, early, 18th, early 20th century, utopian visionaries, who, and he was working from drawings they had made of these sort of Hall of the Mountain King structures. So he was making something that hadn't existed before, so he didn't have this actual object to play off. I mean, I thought that the objects were sort of like crate and barrel, you know? I mean, it just looked like a lot like of glass, glass put out for display, and it didn't... It was just... It was, there was too much of a gap. And then there's this incredibly long, rather interesting essay that you can read at the museum, of, you know, that's written to sort of explain this entire thing, rather than just a little label that makes you sort of think about, wonder what you're looking at. It seemed like he'd just gotten everything kind of turned around, mm -hmm. out of whack. Yes. Regrettably, I agree. <laughs> Which is not something you're allowed to say on the review panel, but I've said it nonetheless. Uh, because, yeah, the pieces I've seen of his at the last Whitney Biennial, not a couple of Whitney's back, and at Brent Sycamore over the years, are just uh, really exhilarating and pugnacious in their craft and in their historical reference. And really, um, that, that kind of experience that you rarely get but really want from... Um, contemporary art, which which melds the conceptual and the fact and the and the uh, the fact and thinking really uh, a hand in glove in in this guy's work, and I I believe we'll see more of him in the future where that happens again. But this seemed. Um, I mean, um, when he's good, he sort of does something like Taft does, I think, where you just mm -hmm. you get this pop, but you also get this sense of history and and very immediate optical experience mm -hmm. mm. and the decorative being made into more than it is usually assumed to be. Alas and alack, the glass and the plastic have not transported us uh, mm -hmm. from those three shows to the place where we really want to be. But let's see uh, how realist painting does it for us. Let's have the uh, lights <coughs> dim. Great. Um, well, usually there's not much point in, in showing installation shots of... Uh, painting show. Uh, one just wants to get on and see the paintings. Um, but I'm glad that uh, Andrea Rosen sent me those installation shots because this is a, an experience for me where context is all. Um, I think these are really decent, honest, solid paintings, but they're awfully familiar to me as a student of British realism of the last 50 years. Um, and I just looked at them, if I had seen them in a very traditional painting gallery and they'd been hanging cheek by jowl, I'd, think, I'd say to myself, well, 
it's good that the Euston Road lives on and that the tradition really pioneered from the 30s onwards by people like uh, Lawrence Gowing and uh, 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 William Coldstream, who may just be completely unknown names to an American audience, uh, continue. This is an artist who studied at the Camberwell School of Art, where uh, a lot of those people were very much involved. Um, and they really do look very strongly like the work of Michael Andrews, who came out of that tradition and who was a student of Coldstreams and a friend of Freud's. And Freud is also echoed, I think, in that painting of the rather nice tush there. It's called Bell. But context is all. It's, we're not in some traditionalist gallery. These are sparsely hung in Andrea Rosen, who's one of the hippest galleries in Chelsea. Um, and um, so I was completely... Um, I was completely floored by the context in which these paintings were being shown. Part of me thought, oh, maybe that's a good thing, that, that realism is having another chance. Or I thought, ah, I'm missing something here. This is, this is cleverer than I am, and this is saying something that I'm not cottoning on to, and I'm being dim. And thank God that Carol Kino will put me in the picture. So, Carol, why is Euston Road painting uh, being shown at the Andrea Rosen Gallery in 2007? Because this work is all about what it's... Let me see how I should put this. It's all about what it's not, is how it seemed to me. It's, you know, you look at it and you say, it can't possibly be as banal as the... Sun. I mean, there's a whole discourse about it, and you know that there's a whole discourse about it, that um, it cannot possibly be these banal... Can it possibly be these banal subjects rendered in this, you know, fairly banal way? No, it has to be more than that, but what is it about? So I think it's actually kind of, I mean, I quite, I didn't like it the first time I saw it. I liked it more the second time I saw it, but I still felt irritated by it because there is a lot of work out there that does seem to be banal, but no, it's not what it appears to be. It's sort of manipulative <laughs> because it's getting you to figure out. Um, it, it's getting you hooked on figuring out how it can't be banal. So it sounds to me perhaps that you're <laughs> you're engaging with the work rather as one might with Luke Toymans. Is that fair? Yes, I like Luke Toymans much better. <laughs> and I actually thought you know the fact that she does a bum in every show that she has at least one bum. Mm. That seemed to be emblematic of what the work is about. <laughs> She's just sticking her bum in your face, you know, and, oh. and <laughs> which does seem to be a trope in art these days. You see a lot of bums out David, there. Uh, without seeking to patronize you <laughs> in any way, because uh, that's something we definitely avoided at the review panel, would it be fair to say that as, a, as an American writer, you, uh, you, you weren't as obviously overwhelmed as I, as a Brit was with the British antecedents of this work. Um, what what did you make of it? Yeah, I, I wasn't I wasn't overwhelmed with the British antecedents, but um, I, I had a similar, you know, in, in trying to figure out what, what it is doing at, at Andrea Rosen. Um, it's certainly not it's certainly not earnest. It, it looks like it, it may look like earnest paintings, but I don't know. To me, there was. Um, There was something, uh, I mean, th this is what was intriguing but ultimately disappointing about it for me, that it, uh, it felt very much about denial. It, uh, there's, you know, she gives a self-portrait, but it's her bum. She gives a, uh, 
the, the Maison Merlin looked like a closed curtain. There's, there's the closed gate before the cemetery. There's the, um, that, the, the monochrome yellow, which um, is, is, there's a very similar composition she's used in the past in which, I mean, you can see some sort of recession within the space. And in, in the past, it's, it's been a passageway, but here it's just called yellow wall. And, and ev everything is kind of closed off. Um, there's, I, yeah, I, I don't, um, I, I wouldn't call it, I wouldn't say that it, it was aggressive or, or sort of obnoxious, but it, there, there was something, there was a challenge, I think, to the viewer. I don't think. Um, hmm. Metaphors of closure, Roberta, that David is picking up on. Uh, did you find that this was a closed door to you? Well, I think you could call it nihilism without repetition, actually. Mm -hmm. <laughs> in, that, in that every painting was different. And, I mean, the whole thing was a kind of installation. You start out with a, a postcard that she's found in a uh, flea market and blown up, and then across, and it's, and it's of a kind of carnival, uh, a big clown surrounded by by people dressed like jesters and dunces, and they're all coming into town. I don't know if it was an English painting or what. But you, so when you start reading her name, which is across the bar, bottom, you almost expect it to say, Carna, you know, Carnival, but then it says Carnegie. Anyway, and the first painting is, I think, pretty clearly must be based on a Mondrian, the yellow tree. And then you see that tree in two paintings, uh, through the door, through, over beyond the gate in one case. Then the checkered floor that's in front of the gate appears in the curtain uh, that's closed off. And, and then you have that strange kind of Nicholson-like landscape. I mean, you know, she's just, I feel kind of, I agree with David. I mean, I basically end up feeling sort of toyed with and that I'm, I, I look at sections of the painting that I'm interested in the way they're painted, but I don't know if I'm supposed to be interested. Like the way the gray gate was painted was very mm -hmm. emphatic and, and it was all kind of, the brushstrokes are all different, mm -hmm. like bricks almost. Um, I just find it very brittle, very unsatisfying. You know, even though I can sort of get this whole thing going in my head, and and the images playing off each other. But ultimately, except for that one landscape, I'm, I find her surfaces so, uh, and also the little flower still life had some nice painting in it. Mm -hmm. yeah, it's not I, there. It's like she's somewhere else. Well, it seemed to me that she has the potential to have a kind of, she has a technical finesse and that there is um, a stimulating diversity of uh, painterly approaches within individual works while there's a kind of overall quiet uh, sensibility. But the scale, the placement um, and, and the kind of emptiness all have a sort of big time attitude that, that doesn't go with the, the quietism of her um, uh, compositional approach. Uh, so, yeah, just uh, I think it's um, I think it's somebody who comes out of a tradition where there are many many practitioners. If you go to Britain, who are working still in in that style, coming out of the same kind of school as literally the same school as her, and also you know in the in the in in, in the other sense. But uh, uh, but it's it's just very curious to me that. Um, People are, are taking on, um, are willing to take on board um, 
um, a kind of conceptual, supposedly conceptual agenda with work which is um, really just um, uh, doesn't doesn't quite really belong there. I, I wonder where somebody like that will go. Will whether they will find other means to pursue a conceptual agenda, or whether actually uh, hidden in there is somebody who's who's dying to paint. Um, because, um, as I say, the, it's it's not the it's not the um, it's not the kind of gauche, deliberate banality of somebody like, uh, say, Richard Prince. It's not just an expedient use of a language. Um, it's definitely not something like. Glenn Brown um, literally copying uh, um, a Frank Auerbach painting, but it, it, it has a very odd relationship to um, a kind of quiet, factual realism that, that either has to develop into real painting or has to give up and become a different kind of conceptualism. Uh, I wish we could disagree about something, but... Uh, um, it's either a signifier of um, the superior intellect of the panel or, um, or a signifier of a very dull choice of exhibitions that we seem to be very much in harmony with all, all the shows we're looking at. I, I, I pray, I hope and pray that uh, uh, we're going to have some audience response now that's going to uh, throw us a bit and throw some, throw some spanners in the works, the lady there. Is there a roving mic? Yes, uh, yep, there is. Um, uh, great. So do wait for the mic so that A, we can hear you, and B, your grandchildren can hear you <laughs> when, in when in 30, 40 years' time they want to hear the review panel from 2007. So there's a lady in the middle there. So. Uh, Hello? Oh, great. Yes, yes thank you. <laughs> okay. So Philip coming Taff. back to Philip Taff and your point about the nihilism of repetition, which I disagree with, but I, the point that I want to make is that Taff at this point is so um, embedded in Middle Eastern art, which has this big tradition of pattern repetition. And I think in Middle Eastern art, pattern repetition is very far from nihilism. It's actually... Um, repetition and patterning can evoke emotions and it also can um, evoke transcendence. But I, the other point that I wanted to make about Taff, whom I really love, is that I was actually very disappointed by this show and I was a little taken aback that all of you were so happy with it. Um, and I was disappointed in it in that I felt like all of the elements, I mean, the analogy for me is like um, a stew that you're cooking, did I just lose? A stew that you're cooking where um, I felt like in looking at the paintings, I could still taste the tomato, the green onion, the, the, the whatever, the pepper separate from each other. It didn't cohere into anything. And I feel like in the past, he has used... Um, references and patterning, nature and geometry, but he did it with so much, um, I, I don't know what the difference was, thickness of application or something where the ideas were still there, but the visual effect was much more, I think, exciting. Mm. And also that certain paintings, when you came up close to it, as opposed to looking at it from afar, was definitely disappointing. 
any more on TAF would be good to take up. Um, yes, there's a lady in the front. I didn't see the show, but when I saw the, I know him, I know his art, when I saw the projection there, the first thing that crossed my mind was computer graphics. Well, maybe am you, were I mistaken? At, you were at a computer, so... No, am I mistaken? It's just like he was playing with the computer, with the Photoshop, and like the repetition and the creations that... Uh, well, obviously there's no mistaking. You know, you, there's no right or wrong here, but I think you should go look at the show because they don't look mm -hmm. nearly as interesting okay. in, repro in reproduction okay. than they do... Okay, okay. Um, yeah. In... So, see the show, just down the road. Uh, <laughs> Madison Avenue and 77th Street. Uh, yep. Uh, more on TAF, um, perhaps, or, or any other artists that you'd like to talk about? Yes. Hi. Um, I was really struck by the TAF and then the three subsequent shows that we saw that were sculptural. They all seemed to deal with the unit and the repetition. Um, and in some instances, uh, seeing all four of those combined, I, I felt there was a relentlessness almost in the manufacture, in the precision. And then when we got to the Rosen show, um, it was a meander. Uh, nothing seemed to follow consecutively to make really much sense at all. It was very arbitrary and uh, quite refreshing. I sort of felt someone open the window. <laughs> um, but thanks for your comments. Well, thanks for yours. I, uh, that's, that, is, that is food for thought. Um, uh, yes? Um, sorry, just something that I think might have been missed in your analysis of the Walker show is that or it was kind of slightly addressed when you referred to his scale. But I think partially what's interesting about that work is that it addresses the language of the kind of macho language of modernism and also the phenomenological experience of minimalist art, but refers it to his scale. So it, it, I think that that is a very important um, part, element of the work, and I think that it does kind of set it apart from the tradition um, that you refer to its place within. So you, you're, you're saying that because of the artist's personal size being, being yeah, a small like person, the runway, for his, instance, his, is, it's a very specific reading of minimal yeah, art from him. Yeah, in relation to his scale. And it's also asking the viewer to address his scale in a phenomenological sense. Mm -hmm. Like the runway, for instance, that's, um, that kind of addresses his step in um, the, the length of his step in relation to the length of a, a taller person's step. The central piece kind of uh, suggests the number of steps it would take a taller person to reach that height, mm -hmm. and then the longer strips of the side mm -hmm. refer to this, the amount of steps that it might require of him. So just a point. But it's a problem that none of that is apparent when you look at the piece. Sure. You know, that's, that's kind of the backstory. But if you compare that to just a lot of sculpture that one has seen in New York, it's those similarities that, will, that I think will be more familiar to more people. So in that way, that's, you know, you just sort of provided a label, a cat, you know, text label. But it's the same problem that, um, that I have with a McElhaney in a way. It's not, in the, it's not really in the work enough yet. And the, the actual size of those pieces is not, it's not unusual for all that sculpture of, of minimal sculpture you, that has been shown here. 
since the 70s. Especially when you can also go and see a show like uh, Charles Ledre, who in a way I wish we'd talked about this evening at uh, Speroni Westwater, one of, you know, a number of artists who deals with uh, minuteness. Um, he himself is a big, chunky fellow uh, from Seattle, but he, he will make... Uh, <laughs> uh, not that they don't have big, chunky fellows in, in Ireland, but, but that... that um, <laughs> Um, that, that he'll he'll make works very closely re related to uh, uh, McElhaney, by the way, uh, in which he'll have a whole vitrine filled with the most minute, uh, individually blown uh, uh, ceramic pieces, uh, the size of a thimble. Um, that's so much, you know, about scale and fracture and the politics of making it, and uh, that um, uh, is, is so much so much more richly invested in the work and and evident, and and that one really has to find out about as soon as you see the work. Uh, you know, with Walker, it's, it's touching to hear that it has that element to it, and once one knows that, um, uh, perhaps one can have a, a, a good political experience with the work, but I'm afraid aesthetically it's not inherent as far as I see. Uh, would David or Carol want to disagree, or shall we? Shall well, we... you know I disagree, so. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that, I mean, I guess just two comments. First of all, I, I do think that, that that point is more evident than, than the, the whole interpretive uh, architecture for the, for the McElhaney. I mean, I, I think you can read some of the, some of the scale issues. Um, but I, I, I don't know. I, I actually feel that that, I don't know. I, I think there's a way in which if that becomes the dominant read on his work, it does a disservice to him. Um, so mm -hmm. I, I think it's good that, that we didn't focus on it. I mean, I, I, my, my impression is that's the one show that there's been some disagreement on this panel about. So I don't, uh, yeah, I, I, I think that's an important aspect of the work. But I think if that, if that becomes the thing we take away, then it really isn't very interesting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think it explains some elements of the work, but I don't think, for me, I didn't necessarily need to know that to mm -hmm. appreciate it. And also, you said something earlier about there's no color in um, the Corbin Walker, and I actually found the experience of color in there really, I mean, I happen to like that glossy green. So that was a particular pleasure for me, seeing that in all of its different layers and depths and striations. But um, I, and I, I love that sort of, you know, taking something that's clear and having there turn out to be a color in it. Um, that's just a particularly pleasurable experience for me. But um, I thought there was tons of color in that show. I would call that tone. But uh, let's take a let's take a mic green? down. Isn't green a color? Well, when when you're savoring the distinction between the shades of it, anyway. Yes. Hi. I, I wanted to agree with Roberta in the sense that it's a very architectural piece, and, and maybe perhaps you could say that it's architecture. But I had a reaction very similar to Carol's and to David's. That David, um, in that I thought it was an extremely beautiful show. And I think that it has a lot of the characteristics of some of Judd's best work. For example, um, let's say the piece that's often up at, uh, at the modern, the four pieces that are lined up next to each other with the green and the silver. And just the mystery of it all, that you have to go up and you can't quite believe that it's the same color in the back because 
the light shines differently on the different segments. So you have to kind of keep walking around it, and it's, it's beautiful and it's mysterious and you want to go up and see how it's made. And I had that feeling with, with the Corbin Walker. I, I thought that your point, David Cohen, that it was a lot like Wilmarth was, was, a very good, uh, was a very good point. It did have a lot of characteristics of Wilmarth. But, but not then, the angst, not the existential angst. Of, of not the existential poetry. angst, but the, the beauty and the mystery of how that comes about. You kind of want to see how it's created. And it just forced me to walk around it and to muse about and the solidity and the ethereal qualities of it. I thought it was really very beautiful. Uh, yes, right at the back, a gentleman wants to comment. Uh, David, I wanted to just take issue with uh, something you said about Gillian uh, Carnegie's work, where you were saying that, well, she either has to be a kind of traditional realist painter or else she should be a conceptual artist who's you know, expressing herself through other means than painting, because I think uh, you're making a dichotomy there that I don't think can exist anymore. I think she's uh, an artist who is, I wouldn't use the word conceptual, I would say she's analytical about painting, about the conventions of painting, about the process of painting, and even about the existential situation of painting, but it's, it's the painting's the subject in any case. That's Barry Schwabsky, by the way, one of our most distinguished critics. Thanks for that comment. And thanks for that challenge. But the best painting is, is, is always uh, conscious of its medium and, and works through the, the problematics of, of its medium, or at least that has been the case since, since the advent, since Manet. I don't think um, you could have substantial real painting that, that isn't concerned with its own language. Um, what, what I just find is that um, she's playing a little bit of a sort of thin conceptual joke somehow with um, the, way I, the, the, the way she's using paint. I don't... Um, but that's different from saying she has to go in one direction or the other. Well, I was saying that she has to go in either in the direction of using the paint uh, to convey something Why? that's compelling could, in and of she itself. She could build up a big market and, you know, be able to do this for a while. Well, she has a big she market, has, and so. no doubt she will do this for a while. I'm not talking in commercial terms, but in, in sort of satisfying intellectual and aesthetic terms. That, that the work isn't... But her intellectual and aesthetic terms, or Well, or I'm yours. speaking... Well, it's me yeah. that's speaking, so naturally yeah. I'm speaking on my terms. That's mm -hmm. the way people speak. In a, <laughs> but it doesn't mean that's what she has to do as an artist. <laughs> it doesn't mean that's what she has to do as an artist. It means what she, what she has to do as an artist if she's going to win me over as okay. a defender. Let's put it in those terms, then. Well, how could one not be putting it in those terms? What other terms would one be putting? I'm not Clement Greenberg saying that for the health of art, she has to do it. Although, in fact, for the health of art, she does have to do it. Because what I'm saying is that the work is anemic and intellectually thin. So it needs some blood in it and needs some flesh in it, or it needs to um, fatten up intellectually. That's what I'm saying. Um, I'd love to hear more from Barry. Oh, well, uh, there's a lady here, but I would want... If, if Barry is willing to, I'd, I'd, I'd like to maybe hear a defence of... of of Gillian, I don't want to put you on the spot there. You're not even being paid. But <laughs> you mean they pay you to do this? Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I have to say, uh, I haven't seen the show. I'm going to see it tomorrow. 
Uh, I know the work pretty well. I've seen some of the paintings already in her studio in London. Uh, I think three of them I'd seen already uh, in some state of maybe not quite finished. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I think what you find anemic, uh, I find that she's uh, confronting a certain emptiness that I find to be uh, intellectually, let's say existentially compelling, and it's not so dissimilar from the emptiness that Manet confronts, and I think it's, uh, you know, a big part of the tradition of of modern painting to, to try and come to terms with this. Well, you know, I'm, I'm glad you say it, and I'm glad you see it in her work, because those, those are the values that I... Those, those, those are ideas that I do value in painting. I, I find in the work, say, of, of Luke Toymans or of, of Merlin James or of uh, Mama Anderson, uh, artists there who are doing exactly what you describe. And for me... The, the, the Merlin James show. By the way, congratulations on the Merlin James show. Oh, it's wonderful. Uh, well, thank you. We don't want to quite turn the review panel into a private conversation. We'll have a drink <laughs> afterwards and you'll <laughs> congratulate me on all my various endeavours, including curating a show of Merlin James at the New York Studio School that continues through March 24th, but that's not a plug. <laughs> that's not a plug uh, for, for, for a personal achievement. Um, but what... It, it seems to me that if... It seems to me that Gillian Carnegie's dialogue about painting is a very intimate one because you need to know the backstory of of Coldstream and Michael Andrews to kind of get it. I don't think that's true. I think you, uh, you know, I don't see it in specific terms of Coldstream and all that, even though I know a little bit about, uh, about them and about their tradition. But I think uh, all you have to know is the general sense of uh, possible modes of academicization of painting, mm. which took place... Uh, in, in different but somehow rather similar ways in different places. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's where I, uh, you know, uh, that's where I would disagree because it seems to me that the, the, the English painters were academic in the sense that they were focused on specific art schools like the Slade in Camberwell, but they struggled against and largely successfully a kind of um, Beaux-Arts academicism to pursue a very 20th century realism which had in its, in its moment coming out of Degas and Sickert and, and other sources, uh, a, a real pertinence. And that um, it's not the, uh, the way of making academic painting in, at this moment. And it, it never really was that academic. So it's, it seems a rather strange style to adopt. I think she works in that style because she trained at Camberwell with people who themselves had trained with Coldstream. And that it's, um, it's an inherited and unexamined language. And that... Um, I don't think she's really going out of her way to make painfully dull paintings. I just think they're a bit dull. Really? I, I think it's deliberate. Yeah, totally I just, deliberate. I just, I, I find it to be a pose rather than yeah. rather than a, a genuine engagement. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I actually, really... it's not the. But they're too nicely painted, aren't they, to be a complete pose? They're not. It's not like David Sally appropriating uh, uh, illustration. Uh, Techniques to, to look like illustration. What's it trying to look like? Well, it, it's it's an act. I mean, it's uh, I mean. Yeah, maybe but if you act, what are you trying to act as? 
she's negating. She's negating your expectations of what it is and that she has the gall to go back and paint something so banal as this in such a banal fashion. I think this idea that she's trying to psych you out is, is uh, uh, I'm just amazed by, actually. I, I can't believe that, uh, I, I can't believe that she's uh, thinking that way. And, and somehow when I look at the paintings, uh, I, I don't try to psych out the artist who's psyching me out. It just never... Um, <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's, well, but yeah, if you thought know, they I were trying to psych you out, you would. Where that comes from. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, Barry. If you had that reaction, you would. I mean, you, I, I, I don't. You don't go into a show and and say, "God, I'm going to think about the way this painter is is trying to psych me out." That's something that happens in looking at the work. You you start thinking, "Is this for real? Is this?" You know, it's it's an experience. It's not something. But if, if it's coming from thinking, well, why is Andrea Rosen interested in this? Well, I didn't say that. No, but, the, yeah. but the David uh, I did, yes. something of the kind. I think if you so put that, that show with that opening poster and everything in, it, in a different gallery, you, you would still get, it, get a similar reaction. You take away the opening poster and maybe, and the Mondrian, maybe it's looking incredibly straight. But, but you know, you still got her bum in there next to a little vase of flowers. So it's... I don't know. It's there's a lot of different currents going on in it, and and I don't think it's insincere. I I do think it's kind of an act. I do think it's probably her way of dealing with what David is talking about this inherited tradition. And I sort of feel like she just has to kind, of, you know, turn the channel a little bit. These paintings are just too dry. But she's clearly interested in how a surface is made. Hmm. You know, it's they're not badly paint. They're not. They're not. I don't bad, doubt. Her. They're not bad painting like. Scarvage and Curran, which is energetically bad, and they're not great painting, like... But that's because it's coming out of a different tradition and it's reacting to a different tradition, I think. I mean, it's I also know, young I painting. Mean, Lisa, Lisa Scarvage, I mean, maybe she's a kind of a good example because uh, Lisa once said to me, every painting I make is painted against William Bailey, right? Um, you know, she's, she's coming from Yale and she's yeah. coming from... Uh, a certain kind of hardcore Classicism. training, which mm. is a different one than the whatever the uh, whatever Jillian Carnegie got at Camberwell, but uh, but they they share this thing, maybe that they have to uh, they have to react against what they hold on to. Right. Well. Thank you very much for that coda, and thank you to our fifth panelist, Barry Schwabsky from London. Thank you uh, to David Gross, Carol Kino, Roberta Smith, the National Academy. Our next... Uh, no, well, uh, oh, yes, it's true. Okay, the lady was waiting to speak. I don't know anything about the background, and I'd never seen this painter before. And when I went in to see Carnegie's show, my first reaction was it was very light. Then I went back, and I went and looked at the cart, you know, the card, and went around and tried to see what inspired her. She repeated that tree in several different places. One of the things that struck me was how poetic that show was. So I didn't agree with you that those paintings were light in the sense that I felt they showed her enormous pleasure in painting, and that that card provided her with inspiration. When I got to the bum, I went back to the card, and I was trying to figure out where that came from. 
And then I thought, well, maybe she's making a comment about what happened to carnival, what happened to entertainment, and the kind of whorishness that has overtaken us in the whole carnival consumptionism and everything. I thought maybe she was making some kind of a statement to contrast with that tree. I didn't see that bum as a, a beautiful part of a woman's body in that context. That's all I had to say. I liked the show a lot. Thank you very much. It's good to have a positive feeling. Let's... You know, as I'm listening to these comments, uh, and I did see the show also, I think we're all prisoners of what we come into a gallery with our mental baggage containing. And I think we're therefore prisoners. We helplessly project it onto whatever we're looking at. Don't you think so? Plato's cave. Yes. <laughs> Let's end on Plato's cave. <laughs> Our next panel is on March the 8th. Is it a Friday? The 8th or the 9th, depending which is the Friday. And confirmed speakers to, this, uh, to, to date are um, um, Joan Waltermatt and Donald Cusper. Thank you very much. Thank you.